And the kids learned how the, it was the Exodus, which is kind of an intense book for kids. You know, when I first heard the BVS was about Exodus, I thought that was, how do you do that with little kids in, in five days? And, uh, but they learned how the Israelites escaped from slavery in Egypt and crossed the desert to get to the promised land. And, and they did crafts and they learned Bible verses and they had, uh, they, they played games and listened to stories and they had snacks and sang songs and it was a busy time and it, it sure gave all the volunteers a run for their money, which is especially big since they didn't get any money because they were volunteers. <laughs> and I heard that one of the kids was asked by his mom what he learned at VBS, and he said, well, mom, our teacher told us how God sent Moses behind enemy lines to rescue uh, the, on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And when he got to the Red Sea, he has his, had his engineers build a pontoon bridge and all the people walked across safely, and then he used his walkie-talkie to radio headquarters for reinforcements, and they sent bombers to blow up the bridge, and all the Israelites were saved. And his mom asked, is that really what they taught you at church this week? And he said, well, no, mom, but if I told you what they taught at Bible school, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> but if you've ever read the book of Exodus for yourself, it's, it's, you know it was it's an intense book. I mean, it's an adventure. It's a, there's, it's, Moses' life is an epic story. I mean, it's got ups and downs and, ins and, and crazy things going on. And I've often wondered what it would be like to be one of those Israelites to, to witness all those things that happened, to see the ten plagues as they came down on Egypt and to watch God part the seas, part the Red Sea and... and and the amazing miracles that he did is he led his people out into the wilderness and they crossed the promised land and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and, and daytime and, and just um, the, the things that you would see as one of those people would be amazing. Of course, I, I, I would definitely prefer to be one of the kids who left Egypt and not one of the adults. And you probably know why. Um, the, all the adults ended up dying in the desert and they never made it to the promised land because they were a bunch of whiners. But... If they made Exodus into an accurate movie, it would be, you'd have to rate it R. I mean, it'd be filled with gore and violence. I mean, there were good things, but it's, it was a real life story and, and terrible things happened. And, and, but one of the great things about the book of Exodus is it's a, it's a sweeping look at redemption. The, and, and the whole book is about redemption. The, the Bible starts off with in Genesis, with how we got here and why God, how, how He designed the world, and then it tells how people selfishly messed all that up with their own sin, and and we know how God tried to wipe out evil with the great flood and start over with a righteous man and his family, but even then, it didn't work out for too long because people still turned to sin and, and destruction. So instead of just destroying everybody again, God decided to pick one person and turned him into a great nation, and then used that nation to influence the rest of the world uh, to live right, to, you know, to basically redeem the world, to help turn people around. Since wiping them out and starting over didn't seem to work too well, he thought, well, maybe I'll transform and I'll use this people. So he picked Abraham, and, and you probably are familiar with a lot of the story, but they ran into the problem along the way of being enslaved by the Egyptians. And last Sunday we were talking about how long the Israelites were in Egypt, last Sunday night, because some people noticed that the dates in the Bible 
in the margins, you know, a lot of Bibles will have dates when, when things happen in the notes, and they only add up to about two centuries worth of slavery from the time that the Egyptians enslaved the people of the, the descendants of Jacob. Um, there were several passages that said there, there are both New Testament and Old Testament references that say that the, the Jews were afflicted for 400 years. And I thought it would be worth taking a quick look at because it, in case other people had similar questions or, or maybe you've never even thought about it before, in which case it'll be something new to add to your Bible knowledge. Now God, if you know God and you understand, if you trust in His Word, then you know the Bible doesn't lie. So when you come across a seeming error or contradiction or, or confusing passage, the best place to look for answers is the Bible itself. And so if you in Genesis 15... It says, after it starts off, Genesis 15 is talking about when God is dealing with Abram before he's even Abraham. And it says, uh, verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, the one who will reward you in great abundance. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what will you give me since I continue to be childless and my heir is Eliezer of Damascus, that was his servant, Abram added, since you have not given me a descendant, then look, one born in my house will be my heir. Which means one of his, if you don't have any kids, any sons, then one of your servants gets all your stuff. And that's what he said was going to happen. And, but the, look, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but instead a son who comes from your own body will be your heir. The Lord took him outside and said, gaze into the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. And then he said to him, so will your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord considered his response of faith as proof of genuine loyalty. And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, but by what can I know that I am to possess it? And the Lord said to him, take for me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abraham took all these for him and then cut them in two and placed them in each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. This was a tip, at that time, this was a typical seal of a covenant. If two separate people or nations or whatever had a treaty or a covenant, this was what they would do. They would cut the animals in half, they would walk between them, and they would quote this uh, saying that basically said, if I break the treaty, if I break our covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. So that was their way of saying, this is how seriously I take the covenant. So God said, do this with these animals. I'm making a covenant with you. This is, the sign. This is, you know, this is my proof that I'm going to keep this covenant. So that's what he was doing with those animals. And verse 12 says, when the sun went down, Abram fell sound asleep and great terror overwhelmed him. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will execute judgment on the nation that they will serve. Afterward, they will come out with many possessions. But as for you, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will return here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its limit. So that's real interesting. Before the Israelites were even Israelite before there were any Israelites when there was just Abraham before he had any descendants God said 
They're going to be oppressed for 400 years. Four centuries, they're going to be in trouble. And, and then after that, I'm going to free them. They're going to be, get out of there. The, I'm going to punish the land that oppressed them. And they're going to go out with lots of possessions. And, and then after the, we go down through history and Moses, or Abraham has descendants and, you know, Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Jacob had the, his sons became the twelve tribes of Israel and they, they did leave after the ten plagues. It's amazing how much it took to convince Pharaoh to let the people go after they enslaved him. If you know the story, Jacob goes into Israel because there was the, the famine. Joseph, their brother, the, their brothers that sold him into slavery. And he wound up in Egypt and wound up through turns of events in God's providence as second in command under Pharaoh. And there was a famine. And so Jacob and his kids ended up moving to Egypt. I mean, there was an interchange, but they moved the family to Egypt because the Pharaoh said, Joseph, since you're my guy, bring your family in. We'll give them a land in Goshen. They can live there. There were 70 people in the family and they all settled in Egypt. And then that Pharaoh died and a new Pharaoh took power. Meanwhile, the, the Israelites are breeding like rabbits and they've got lots and lots of kids. And the new Pharaoh says, these people are expanding too fast. They're growing in number too fast. What if they decide to turn against us and become our enemies where that could be trouble? And so the Pharaoh decided to preemptively turn them into slaves and force them to be their workforce. And that's what happened. They, they all became slaves and they ended up building the cities of Pithom and Ramses and, and being slaves in Egypt for two centuries. But it says 400 years and uh, Exodus 12 says how long they had actually been in slavery. Exodus 12 at verse 37 says the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth and there were about 600,000 men. So that's when they left Egypt. They had, they had gone from a family of 70 to 600,000 plus their dependents. So an average family in the U.S. is what, like you know, a husband and a wife and 1.8 kids or something like that. So that's a, if if you're going by that, I'm guessing they probably had even more kids. But if you go by a, a small American family, that's over two million people that left Egypt. I mean, it's a huge group. So it says a mixed multitude also went up with them. So that means Egyptians and other people besides just the Jews left Egypt with them. There's a huge, huge group of people, and that's why Pharaoh was afraid that all these people were going to rise up and turn against them. So. Um, it says they went after their flocks and their herds and a very large number of cattle. They baked cakes of bread without yeast using the dough they had brought from Egypt for it was made without yeast because they were thrust out of Egypt and were not able to delay. They could not prepare food for themselves either. Now, the length of time the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. So now we've gone from two centuries, about 215 years, to 400, now 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on the very day, all the regiments of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. It was, the night, it was a night of vigil for the Lord to bring them out from the land of Egypt. So on this night, all Israel kept to the vigil to the Lord for the generations to come. And they're talking about the Passover. That's when God instituted the Passover because that night was when the angel of death came and killed all. That was the 10th plague, killed all the firstborn sons and passed over all the people who had painted their who'd done the ceremony of of sacrificing a lamb and putting the blood on the doorposts and the angel passed over those houses so all their firstborn lived 
And that's when faith... That's Exodus 12 at verse 40. And, and so, if you remember the story about Abraham, um, it, it wasn't Abraham who was enslaved in Egypt. Abraham was never a slave. Um, but it was the descendants of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had his kids, and they all moved into Egypt. And then down the line, the new Pharaoh turned them into slaves. So it was the descendants of Abraham via the descendants of Jacob. And, uh, but if you look at the date for when the Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, turned the Israelites into slaves, it's only 215 years before Moses is sent by God to rescue the people out of Egypt. And at first glance, it can seem like there's a conflict because you've got 215 years that they're actually slaves, 400 years that they said they're going to be oppressed, and 430 years that said they're going to be in Egypt. So, so we know the official governmental enslavement of the, of the Israelites happened about two centuries before the Exodus. So what was going on four centuries before Moses came? The, the Bible not only tells us what was going on with Abraham, uh, but also why it starts counting the Egyptian oppression two centuries before the actual enslavement. And this is in Genesis 21. At the beginning, it says, The Lord visited Sarah, which is Abram's wife, just as he had said he would, and did for Sarah what he had promised. He promised a, a, an heir, a, a son. And so Sarah became pregnant and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the appointed time that God had told him. Abraham named his son whom Sarah bore him Isaac. And God told that when, when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him just as God has commanded him to do. And now Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So imagine being a hundred years old and having your first kid. <laughs> That would be quite, a, quite an experience. And the, verse 6 says, Sarah said, God has made me laugh. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. So she, she went on to say, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Because she's just 10 years younger than Abraham. So she's 90 and she had her first child. So a 90-year-old woman nursing her little baby. Um, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have given birth to a son for him at his old age. The child grew and was weaned Abraham prepared a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah noticed the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, the son whom Hagar had born to Abraham, mocking. So the official kickoff of the 400 years problems with Egypt begins with Ishmael. And because Ishmael's mom was an Egyptian. Hagar was an Egyptian. And if you remember the problem, Abraham and, and Sarah weren't, too sure how God was going to give them kids because they were so old. And so Sarah said, we'll sleep with my servant Hagar because that was one way of producing, you know, it was, it was a, a technicality, but it was an official way of producing an heir. You sleep with your servant and your servant's child becomes yours. And so he slept with Hagar, the Egyptian, and they had a kid whose name was Ishmael. And Ishmael was older than Isaac, obviously. And so Isaac was then born later because God said, no, I'm going to give you your own child. You, you and Sarah are going to have your own child. It's not going to be Ishmael. I'll take care of Ishmael, but you're going to have another son. And that's Isaac, who's named Laughter. Um, and so five years after, it, it's 25 years 
from the time that God promised Abraham a son until Isaac was born. That's a long time to wait for a promise, isn't it? When God promises something and you don't get it right away, don't think that God hasn't keeping His promises. Because it was 25 years between the time God said, I'm going to turn you into a great nation, and He actually had this first kid. And then five years later, they weaned Him. So there was a five years of nursing. They, had, they didn't have formula or, or grocery stores like we do, so that was probably a typical sort of thing. But Hagar's son, the Hagar the Egyptian, Ishmael um, turned out that he, you know, siblings never do seem to get along very well, but he was apparently mocking and persecuting his little half-brother. And that is the beginning. Five years after he was born, he was weaned. And so you've got 30 years from the promise of Isaac until he's actually born and weaned. And, on, and 30 years later, that's when Ishmael is persecuting Isaac. And that's where the start of the 400 years begins of trouble with Egypt because technically... He's half Egyptian. Ishmael is. Who's, who's, so that's where you get 400 years and the 430 year tally is the extra 30 years between the promise and the weaning of, of Isaac. So that's where you get those dates even though they weren't officially governmental slaves of Egypt. That's where you get the persecution of Egypt. Um, and so Abraham's grandson, Israel, Jacob, who's renamed Israel, and he moves his family of, of 70 to Egypt when, when his son Joseph was in second man under Pharaoh. And they become, when they marched out again, they came in as 70 people and about 200, well, a little more than 200 years, they marched out again as 600,000 men plus all their descendants. And, and so they numbered in the millions of people who, who marched out. And Pharaoh, and what really gets me, I don't understand why it's, I mean, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. I get it. People's hearts get hardened. But he went through the 10 plagues he lost his own son in the last plague. And they finally said, okay, just go. Just take your animals, take your people, and go. And all the people of Egypt were glad to see them leave because they were sick of these plagues. And so they actually gave them gold and silver and treasure and said, just take it and just go. And so they left. They plundered Egypt as they left, which is what God prophesied 400 years before, 430 years before. And said, "You're going to leave. You're going to leave the land with lots of possessions, and I'm going to punish them for their oppression." And that's exactly what happened. But what really gets me: Pharaoh has lost his firstborn child, and after the people have left and they've walked away, he still changes his mind and decides to take his army and go after them again. And so, after the plagues, after losing his kid, he gets to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea thing is a miracle. I, I don't. I've heard different reports about how. Um, how people think the Red Sea was just kind of a fluke, how there was, you know, it wasn't that deep and so they could walk across or there's, there's land bridges that would come up out of, you know, that, that, that low tide, you could walk across on dry ground and it's no big deal. And then I've heard, seen things where it said, you know, the wind could have blown and just enough of the water to, to, to move off so it was, you had a little dry patch. But the Bible says there were walls of water on either side. I mean, I don't know how deep the, the Red Sea is you know, 900 feet deep in places. So I don't know how deep they actually went. There are places that are shallower, but there were walls of water on either side and they walked across. And, and any wind that can hold up that much, I mean, if you go down 15 feet, it's another atmosphere of pressure. 
So you'd have to have twice the atmospheric pressure to hold that much water away. That kind of wind would blow a truck, you know, a, a house, n- much less a person. You couldn't walk through there if it was just a, a wind phenomenon. This was a miracle of God that, that caused this to happen. I, I, I heard a story about a young man who was reading the book of Exodus in the park one day and he, was, he, he came across that miracle and he started proclaiming to God, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! God is great! And along comes a professor from the local university and he, and he asks the guy, what are you so excited about? And he says, well, do you know what God is able to do? I just read how God opened up the Red Sea and parted it so that the Israelites could, the whole nation of Israel just walked right through the middle. And the professor being, well, like a lot of professors, these are atheists and, and, and enlightened and he, and decided to explain the realities of, of, what actually happened and how the, the Bible miracles are just, you know, if they really happened, it was just these flukes and it was the, the Red Sea was only 10 inches deep at the time and it was no problem for the Israelites to just wade across without any problem. And, and then he began to walk away and with the young man had a puzzled look on his face and he considered what the professor had explained for a moment and then he began to rejoice even louder. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! And the professor was kind of flummoxed and said, well, now what are you so excited about? And the young man said, wow, God is greater than I thought. Not only did He help the whole nation of Israel get across the Red Sea, but He drowned the whole Egyptian army in ten inches of water. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a miracle. And there were walls of water, the Bible says. And so it was, you, you can't explain it away with, with little physics tricks. It was a miracle. And they crossed the river... And so it was, and the whole Egyptian army was devastated when they, when the walls crashed back in and, and drowned them all. And so it wasn't just a trick with wind or, or shallow water or land bridge. And you would think the Israelites saw this. Imagine being one of those people. If only they could have recognized the importance of what had happened. I mean, they sang songs when they got across, you know, the, Horse and rider are thrown into the sea. They celebrated. They were, there were times that seemed like things were great and they got it. They understood. They recognized and they were going to walk out in victory. If only they could have recognized what they had earned, what they had been given. They didn't earn anything. God rescued. He redeemed them through there would, they didn't do anything to be rescued. God chose Abraham. Abraham didn't do anything to be chosen. God just picked him. He made a nation out of him. He rescued him out of Egypt. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. He just said, I'm gonna, you're my people. I picked you. I'm going to take good care of you. And so he did everything he could to build up this nation into his people, to set them apart and make them holy. And it's like, it's like they had Stockholm Syndrome. You know what Stockholm Syndrome is? It's when somebody is, is taken hostage or kidnapped and they start to kind of feel a connection with their kidnapper. And so even though they're released, they feel like they still want to go back. It's like this whole nation had Stockholm Syndrome and they kept whining and complaining. I wish that we were back in Egypt where we had food and we had our homes and everything was nice and we were slaves and we were forced to build and forced to work. It's like, I, it's, it's like they wanted to go back to Egypt and live on government welfare even though the government runned their lives for them. They, didn't, they, didn't, they had freedom. God gave them freedom to have their own lives, to be their own nation, to be their own people, but they wanted to live on government support, even though they had to do whatever the government told them to do. I mean, it's crazy. And, and, and you've heard the statement, freedom isn't free. And a lot of times we think about, well, that's because soldiers, you know, lots of people down through the ages have sacrificed their lives and, and, 
and given their blood in order so that we can have freedom. But it's also, if you think about it, freedom means that you have to take ownership of it. You have to take responsibility for your freedom. It doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. It means you, you control your own life and you hold on to that freedom so that you can continue to live in liberty and you're not controlled by a government. You're not controlled by, by a, an oppressor or a tyrant or whatever. Uh, you, uh, just about every superhero movie these days has something that goes along with the lines of saying, with great power comes great responsibility. And that's what God had done. He had taken the people out of Egypt from slavery and He had said, I'm giving you great power. You're free. You're, the, you're my nation. You're my people. You've seen what I can do. I am going to live amongst you. I'm going to make my abode with you. You're going to have the tabernacle and, and the Ark of the Covenant and His, his living place was going to be on the, the mercy seat, the lid of that Ark. He had, that's where God was going to be with the people and take good care of them and provide for them and do everything that they needed. And, and they just needed to take responsibility. They needed to grab a hold of that freedom and say, we are going to maintain this. We are going to defend it. We are going to live the way God has called us to live. And, and, and when you trade liberty for licentiousness, you know, a lot of people think that freedom or liberty is, means you just do what you want. You, you eat, drink, and be merry. But the truth is, when you start doing things that aren't good for you, you know, you give yourself over to, to drugs or to alcohol or to sexual immorality or to any of that kind of stuff, you become a slave to that stuff. And God knew that. And God said, this is why you have the Ten Commandments. This is why you live according to this moral code. Because if you start living outside of the moral code, you become enslaved by sin. You become enslaved by the evil things that you start doing and you're no longer free. And so he said, if you want to be free, hold on to it. Claim it. Live in responsibility. Govern yourself. Don't be true freedom is always self-government. You, you know, if, if somebody else is governing you, you're not free. If if whether it's you know whether it's a governmental, an actual government like the United States government, if they're telling you how to live your life, if they're telling you what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, you're not really free. But if you're living your life the way you're called to live your life and you, you're not under a government, I mean, God said He, he ordained governments and he, the laws were meant to have peace and to have everybody get along. But the idea is you live a peaceful life anyway. Not because the government told you to do, but because God told you. You live a moral life. You live a peaceful life. You don't invade the freedom of other people and you're not going to cause any problems and nobody's going to bother you. Except, of course, tyrants, which will bother you anyway. But, but the idea is true freedom is always self-responsibility, self-reliance, self-government. And when you trade self-responsibility for outside control, you're no longer free. And that's true politically or governmentally. If you, if you give away your, your freedoms so that somebody else will take care of you and somebody else will provide for you and somebody else will give you the food and the clothes and stuff and you depend on somebody else, you're not free. You're a dependent. You're not independent. You're a dependent. And that's true with government, but it's also true morally. And that's what we're talking about. That the people of Israel morally didn't want their freedom. They didn't understand how valuable it was. They didn't understand how good it was to live in freedom as a moral person with, with self-control. With, with, with control of God sort of thing. And, and so they... 
So God basically lays out all of this for the Jews. I mean, He gives them everything He can. He gives them the program. He writes down the law to live by and so that they can have the best possible opportunity to live in liberty and prosperity. He gives them both a moral code so that they can live together as a society and not trample each other's freedoms, but He also gives them the ceremonial law which dealt with you know what they wore and what they ate and, and all these things so that... And he, did, he gave them the ceremonial code so they would purposely stand out from the world. So the world would see their, their dress and see their practices and know that they were different. Know that they were special. Know that they were set apart for service to God as a people. And sadly, in no time at all, the people are mumbling and they're grumbling and they're constructing a golden calf to worship. And then Moses becomes the worst lawbreaker of them all when he breaks all Ten Commandments at the same time. Get it? <laughs> but, <laughs> but seriously, when, when it's easy to think that the Israelites just must have been really stupid for it to have been given so much and to just let it all go. To just throw it all away for, for not realizing how great it was to be a free people and to have God living amongst them and, and to have His blessings and His providence. But if you look at, your, at our own similarities, you might not feel so smart. In comparison, and that's our scripture for today. It says it's Exodus five or Exodus one at verse five. It says all the people who were directly descended from Jacob numbered seventy. That's when they went to Egypt. But Joseph was already in Egypt, at, and in time, Joseph and his brothers and all that generation died. And the Israelites, however, were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, and became extremely strong, so that the land was filled with them. And then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power over Egypt. And he said to his people, look at the Israelite people, more numerous and stronger than we are. Come, let's deal wisely with them. Otherwise, they will continue to multiply. And if a war breaks out, they will ally themselves with our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. They accepted slavery. The Israelites, even though it says they were more numerous and more powerful than the Egyptians, the Egyptians said, we're going to make you our slaves I don't know if it was just a decree that day or if it was just a, a slow kind of progression to, okay, you've got to follow this rule now. Okay, now you've got to follow this rule now. And now you've got to follow this rule. And the, and the rules included you know, how much service you have to give to your government. You know, we have income tax. Back, you know, back in, in the beginning of our country, there was no such thing as an income tax. The Constitution said income tax is unconstitutional. In 1913, we wrote an amendment to say we're going to change the Constitution so now we can tax your income. So basically, you guys are all slaves of the government because your income tax, money that you worked for, you gave your blood, sweat, and tears for, the government takes. So those hours that you worked for that money was basically slave labor. So it could have been that kind of thing where the government of Egypt slowly said, okay, you've got to give so much of your time or so much of your effort to the government because you know we're taking care of you. We provide your military and we provide your your roads and your bridges and you know whatever so you got it's only right that you give us so much of your time as slaves maybe we won't call you slaves but and and so the israelites gave it up they gave up their freedom they were more numerous and more powerful than the egyptians and they they allowed themselves to become slaves and they got so used to it that then they left when god rescued them out of egypt they wanted to go back they wanted to go back to slavery they said we would rather be taxed of ourselves. We would rather be slaves 
We would rather give our work and our time and our effort to build, to have to make our own bricks and build the cities for Egypt and be provided the, the, the free stuff that they gave us. Because they gave us free food and they gave us free whatever so that we could, because slaves are taken care of. You know, all slaves, they get their food as provided by their master and their clothes and their housing. That's, you know, you get free rent and you free Obama phone and free whatever. You just got to give up your freedom. And that's what they did. And you think, well, they were so stupid, but that's exactly what's going on in our own nation. And so the, so my, what I would like you to think about today, that the only true freedom is living the way God designed people to live. And that's, I mean, most importantly is your moral freedom. Beyond politics and government and all that stuff, your moral freedom depends on you living a moral life. Because if you don't live a moral life, you start to lie and cheat and steal and, and commit sexual immorality and, and all that. Give yourself over to drugs and alcohol so you have no control. When you start doing that stuff, you lose your freedom. You become a slave to sin. And you trample on the freedoms of others. When you're cheating and stealing and killing and that kind of thing, you start trampling on other pieces. So it messes up society. The only way to have true freedom is to live according to the moral code that God designed us to live by. That is real freedom, which means there's self-control. You're controlled by the Spirit, really, when you're doing it right. You're living according to the Spirit that God designed us to live by. That's why we have a moral law from God. And that's why it's so foundational to any society. And when that society starts walking away from the moral code that God gave us, the society crumbles. And it's happened over and over and over down through history. So most importantly, it's living by moral code and that's the best way for freedom. Of course, then you've got to deal with governments and sometimes you know, lots of people down through the history have had to deal with oppressive governments. The first churches, the first church, the early Christians in Rome, in, uh, all over the world, the early Christians in, in Israel and everywhere had to deal with the oppressive government of Rome. They lived under a, a, a conquering government. So sometimes you've got to deal with that. Sometimes you have a nice situation like us where technically we are supposed to be our own government. We elect our leaders. We tell our leaders what to do and what not to do. They're supposed to be our, you know, we're supposed to be their bosses. So it's nice if you can take advantage of that and not let your government uh, turn you into a slave, especially when you're not, you don't have to be. You know, it's one thing if you've got a tyrant and they're bearing down on you because they've got all the military or they've got all the police and their police have tanks and, and M16s and whatnot, and they tell you what to do, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do if you don't have tanks and M16s too. But if you can go to the ballot box or if you can call your senator or congressman and say, listen, I don't want to live as a slave anymore. Let's change some policies. You know, we still technically have the power to change some things around if the, if the people weren't as stupid as the Israelites in Egypt. But it seems like stupidity is a problem that you know, we've all had to deal with down through the ages. But if first and foremost you make God your king and commander, if you follow the moral law of God and live in spiritual freedom, that's where everything else starts to connect. That's where God will start to direct you. And if He wants you to just deal with the government and live as a model under an oppressive regime, so be it. And if he says, I want you to stand up and I want you to preach and do something, then so be it. If he says, I want you to, to lead a new movement to rescue people, then so be it. God is the one who ordains and uh, kings and leaders and whatnot. And God will tell us how best to, to, to deal with that kind of stuff. And God 
gives us intelligence and gives us the abilities to, and, and, and skills and talents to be able to put what He has given us into use for His service. So we can deal with all that as a, as a side note. But what's most importantly is to live in spiritual freedom by following the moral code that God has written on our hearts to live by and live in true freedom and not to fall into the trap of wanting somebody else to be your master. Of wanting, you know, it's, it's people turn to drugs and alcohol because it's, a, it's an escape. It feels nice for a while. They turn to, to sex or they turn to, you know, things that aren't technically sinful. They'll devote their lives to TV and the internet and YouTube and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. They'll, they'll devote their lives to reading storybooks or they'll devote their lives to, to pastimes and, and climbing mountains or, or running or, you know, whatever. There's so many things that you can occupy your life with that you just forget about God. You forget about morality. You forget about all that stuff. You know, things that aren't technically sinful, but you let your life be run by other stuff. And so don't turn into a slave of all the stuff. Let God be your primary. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. You know, God will help you know what you need, what you don't need, what you ought to have in your life, what you ought to cut out of your life. You follow the God. You follow the Spirit and He'll give you a good life. So first and foremost, live in spiritual freedom and don't let it go. It is too valuable to let go. It's too valuable to forget about. Hang on to that freedom and live for God. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much that You, that you, out of Your kindness, out of Your grace and Your mercy, decided we were worth freeing from slavery. That You were willing to give Your life so that we could have the opportunity of being redeemed by Your grace and by Your kindness and having our sins forgiven so that we could start all over again in freedom. Kind of like our new nation when when America was started, that You chose to rescue us and You chose to say, hey, if You want it, You can be free. And I pray that You would help us to recognize that and to understand how valuable that freedom is and how valuable it is to be self-controlled, to be controlled by the Spirit so that we can hold on to that freedom and maintain that freedom and live in that freedom and then share that freedom with other people who don't have it yet. Help us to understand the vitality of spiritual freedom and to live in it and to share it with others. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.